Welcome to the High Point Baptist Church Sermon Cast, expository Bible sermons from the preaching and teaching ministry of High Point Baptist Church in Larksville, Pennsylvania, for the glory of God and the proclamation of His Word. We thank you for listening. And now, High Point Baptist Church Associate Pastor, Pastor Robert Bennett. We're going to be in the book of Luke this morning. I've had you all over the times I've been preaching, sometimes in the Psalms. I had a few messages in the book of Galatians, which is a, an epistle. And now we're going to be in Luke. The children are dismissed. And before I forget, thank you, Donna, for playing as usual. We're blessed to have you serving in the church This morning we're going to be in a narrative passage of Luke chapter 9. The title of this morning's message, as I'm reading the notice that we're live on YouTube, is Are You Ready and Willing to Follow Jesus? We've had an opportunity to uh, be witness to a couple of baptisms this morning, an external testimony, a profession of a transformed life in Christ, and uh, this morning our passage in Luke is going to be talking about those who profess that they are following the Lord. The doctrine of discipleship is overlooked. Discipleship, plainly stated, is total denial of self to follow after Christ, nothing less That is what it takes to follow Jesus. Sounds like a tall order to fulfill, doesn't it? Yes. But many today aren't ready to do that. They've been confused about what it means to be a disciple of Christ. And it's understandable that they're confused because over the last 50 years, uh, we've seen a decline in a call to genuine change and a genuine denial of self, that repentance has been downplayed and that you just need to believe in Jesus and everything is good. Some pastors have concluded that the message of denying self, taking up the cross and following after Christ is too harsh. The cost is too high. So they decided to soften the requirements or spice up the offer to the dismay of many who believe that by doing so, you hurt souls and you give false assurance of salvation where there isn't any. We've seen the destruction of lives from people who believe that they were saved when they weren't believing that they can sin in any way and still say that they're a follower of Christ. Haven't you? As a result, many of these men have offered forgiveness of sin and eternal life as gifts without a cost. John MacArthur has written several books on the subject of the gospel and true discipleship and about the high cost and infinite value of following Jesus, Ray Comfort, in his popular sermon on true and false conversions, explains a popular myth. 
the belief that it's possible to be a Christian without being also a disciple of Christ. It's a myth. In fact, I believe that there are many in churches filling pews, calling themselves Christians, whose interest in Jesus looks more like a hobby and less like the focal point around which they orient their lives. Nothing in their life outside of the church and the church attendance would lead you to believe that they follow Jesus, that they want to learn from Jesus. They seek to be obedient to Jesus in all things, or that they have any real conviction about what the Bible says about any given subject. You may be sitting here surprised at these statements. Those are tough. Perhaps you have brothers or sisters or parents or children or grandchildren or neighbors who fit this description. Perhaps you see a stark contrast between Sunday and Monday in many of their lives. Perhaps this is you. It's hard to deny this is happening when you take an honest look at the landscape of American Christianity. Sadly, many find it more important to be seen as relevant by the culture than to be seen as interested in the doctrines found in the Bible. Time is devoted to politics and social media which trumps, no pun intended, devotional time, prayer, and evangelism. This doesn't seem to be the case here at HPBC. It doesn't seem to be that way. I look around the hallways and the classrooms on Sundays and Wednesdays, and I see people here thriving in a body that's dedicated to making disciples. So you're thinking, why are you bringing it up here then? It seems like you should take that message to where it's really needed. But in a congregation this size, there are surely some this morning who have not yet committed themselves to Jesus and salvation. In a congregation this size, there are others who have not followed up their testimony with a public act of baptism, as we saw this morning. But I'm getting ahead of myself i got to get into what the disciple is before we get really into this. So let's start with what a disciple is, because we're going to be talking about discipleship out of Luke chapter 9. I don't want to make a long introduction. I want to get straight into the Scripture and see what it says, but there's some background information that you need to know so that you understand where we're going in this passage. Some English you also need to know as well, like what disciple means. According to the Bible, a disciple of Jesus is someone who follows Jesus, not casually, but intensely. The Greek word for disciple means one who studies under a teacher, mathetes. Our English word for disciple comes from a Latin word for scholar, and I don't know how to pronounce that one in Latin, so I won't try. But a disciple, therefore, is plainly defined as a learner. Someone that follows, someone that learns from a teacher. So being a disciple is all about learning, and the only disciples that Jesus was interested in were devoted learners. Everything learned from Jesus is intended to shape our character and to guide our emotions. But Jesus didn't spend a lot of time focusing on emotions. 
There isn't a huge focus on a person's feelings, but the word of our words of our Lord's were sent to engage the intellect. And when the mind is engaged and the mind is changed, our feelings and our emotions follow. Rightly, when your mind is guided by truth, you have a mind focused to have the same mind as Christ, and you have the same emotions and same cares as Christ has. See Philippians chapter 2. The end goal of a Christian discipleship program is to create individuals who are like Christ. And this goal cannot be considered a casual endeavor. You sit here this morning proclaiming to be disciples of Christ. You ought not to see it as something you just do on Sundays. This is a lifelong commitment. And our passage this morning, I hope, will emphasize that that each one of us will see that this is not just a social gathering. They have other kinds of groups for that. This is a family. This is a body. This is a group of individuals devoted to following after Christ and learning from his word and carrying out the Great Commission. That is what we're here for, to love, to encourage one another, to pray for one another. That's discipleship. Our focus is going to be in Luke chapter 9, verses 57 to 62, to see what Jesus says to those who want to follow him. Jesus had lots of people that were coming up to him, and we get an example of a few this morning in our text. Uh, So when you're in chapter 9, I want you to just kind of glance through it with me. It's a long chapter. It's 62 verses, and a lot happens in this chapter. He starts out by commissioning the 12. And these names are familiar to you. Names like Peter and James and John and Matthew, Bartholomew, Thaddeus. Maybe not as familiar to you. Uh, But there was even a couple of Judases. One was Iscariot, who you know as the betrayer. He's also one of these 12 mentioned. Well, we find that mostly in Matthew chapter 10, but there's a parallel section of of this. Along the way, Jesus gave his disciples authority to heal the sick and to cast out demons, and to even raise the dead. When they returned to Jesus, because this is, this is a long enough chapter that they went and came back. When they returned, he continued with them performing miraculous deeds and spoke like no one else had. In this chapter, we see Luke's account of the feeding of the 5,000 in verse 12. We even see the account of the transfiguration. Here, the transfiguration being that the moment when Jesus revealed his glory to Peter, James, and John. In this chapter, Jesus calls the twelve to commit themselves fully by denying themselves and taking up their cross. 
In verses 20, well, starting in verse 23, he says, And he was saying to them all, If anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. Our passage this morning is at the end of this chapter. The settings of Jesus and his disciples beginning their travel to Jerusalem. They've been in Capernaum. They've been around in a lot of places. And now they're on their way to Jerusalem. Verse 51 tells us he's headed to Jerusalem. It says that when the days of were approaching for his ascension, he was determined to go to Jerusalem. And he sent messengers on ahead of him. And they went and entered a, vi- a village of the Samaritans to make arrangements for him. But they, the Samaritans, did not receive Jesus, him, because they were traveling toward Jerusalem. And we can understand that's a whole message there when it comes to the relationship between the Samaritans and the Jews. But they heard that Jesus and his disciples were headed to Jerusalem and said, no, we won't give you what you need. As they're walking and continuing on, as was custom with Jesus, people would just start to follow. He had the 12, and suddenly the crowd would get larger and larger as they started to see this man who spoke again like no one else spoke, who performed miracles that they'd heard. Some would come to him for healing. Some would come to him for wisdom. Some would come to commit to follow him. And this morning, we are going to see three interactions between Jesus and men who wanted to be his disciples. Three men who are ready to start a long-term journey with Jesus, each one having their own reasons and each one having a hindrance that kept them from following. We also get to see the mind of Christ in knowing the hearts of men. If you ever want to know if Jesus was so omniscient that he knew what was inside these men's hearts, you'll get to find that out this morning. If you want another, another example, you can write down Mark chapter 2 and learn about the healing of the paralytic. And you'll see that Jesus knew the hearts of those that were questioning whether he had the power on earth to forgive sins. And it says Jesus knew their hearts. You want to understand that Jesus was omniscient. This passage will tell you that by the way that he interacts with these three men. The same hindrances that they struggled with are the same we face today. And they are examples to us of how these stumbling blocks can keep men, women, boys, and girls from being true disciples of the Lord Jesus Christ. In this passage, I want us to see three three. My wife's a sign language interpreter. Three hindrances to true discipleship so that you will know if you are committed to following Jesus. As we read about these interactions with would-be disciples, you'll come to the conclusion that if we are to be true disciples, we need to follow him regardless of comfort, follow him regardless of custom, and follow him regardless of connections with family. Now that I've given you that introduction, let's look at the Word of God and see what it says. Luke chapter 9, starting at verse 57. As they were going along the road, someone said to him, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, the foxes have holes, and the birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. And he said to another, follow me. 
But he said, Lord, permit me first to go and bury my father. But he said to him, allow the dead to bury their own dead. But as for you, go and proclaim everywhere the kingdom of God. Another also said, I will follow you, Lord. But first permit me to say goodbye to those at home. But Jesus said to him, no one, after putting his hand to the plow and looking back, is fit for the kingdom of God. Our first man and his hindrance is that he wanted comfort. And I hope that you'll see that as we go through this. It says, as they were going along in verse 57, someone said to him, I will follow you wherever you go. This may seem out of place today, but it was common practice at this time in history and still in a lot of places around the world. This was a teacher, a rabbi, and his classroom is the world. And when people would join up to a rabbi, they would just come up and say, teacher, rabbi, I want to be one of your disciples. And the rabbi would take the student and he would teach them life. We have that in uh, electricians and and other types of, of labor movements where you'd have an apprentice, apprentice they would join to a master and learn the craft. Here we have a teacher, a rabbi, mighty and powerful in the scriptures, and you have these followers wanting to know everything about what he knows. There were others who wanted to follow for other reasons, and we'll see if this man fits one of these two groups. There were times when hundreds and even thousands of people followed Jesus as he traveled and taught. There was only a small number who desired to learn from him. This man says he wanted more. His identity is not given here in Luke, but he's, he's told about us in Matthew chapter 8. So turn over, keep your finger here in Luke chapter 9, but turn over to Matthew chapter 8. The wonderful opportunity we have in having the four Gospels is that you get to see parallel accounts of the same encounters throughout. In Matthew chapter 8, we hear about this man. Verse 18 says, Now when Jesus saw a crowd around him, he didn't take long for his disciples to suddenly swell into a crowd. He saw a crowd around him. He gave orders to depart to the other side of the sea. And then a scribe came and said to him, Teacher, I will follow you wherever you go. And what does he say? Foxes have holes, birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. So here we see that this is the same man. He's not just your run-of-the-mill guy who wanted to follow Jesus, but this is what the Bible calls a scribe. And you're thinking, what's a scribe? It's somebody that scribes things down, that writes things down, right? Well, a scribe was like the top echelon of lawyers of the day. I'm looking at you, Zach. And many of these scribes were rabbis themselves. They knew the Word of God. They knew the law of God to the point where they would have their own students. But this scribe wanted more. He had spent years studying and learning everything about God's law, but it seemingly was not enough for him. What was his level of commitment? Okay, Matthew chapter 8. Teacher, rabbi, I will follow you wherever you go. That's quite a commitment, right? 
Again, this was common for, for teachers back then. You're going to follow me wherever I go because that's what rabbis and followers did. But his level of commitment was self-sacrifice. He was willing to do what was necessary to follow after Jesus. Now, there were whole crowds that had the same desire to follow Jesus wherever he went, but they wanted to see where he was going so they could stop and receive something from Jesus, not just teaching, and maybe not even teaching, but this guy could feed 4,000 with five loaves and two fish. And so if I hang around with him, surely there's food enough for me. They wanted stuff. The day after Jesus fed the 5,000, they kept wanting more from him. They kept following after him because he had something for them. Jesus knew what they wanted and said that they were following him and calling him rabbi, but they did not believe him. They only followed him for his works not his, and his miracles and, his, and, and those kind of things, but not for his teachings. John chapter 6 describes when Jesus confronted individuals who were coming after him for just the stuff that he gave to them. As soon as he started to give his harsh teaching, many turned away and didn't follow him anymore. And he turned to his disciples and said the same thing. Are you going to leave also? Peter says, how could we go? You are the one who has the words of everlasting life. But some did leave. This guy's not going to feed us. We're out of here. He's not going to always be here to heal our sick. Then he's not for me. If all I'm going to hear is I've got to deny myself and take up my cross, death, I don't want that. This scribe personifies the idea that many had about Jesus, that he was only, Jesus was only there to care and provide for their needs. Jesus knew this was the case for the scribe, and that's why this, the words that he gives about foxes and birds and himself make sense. If I'm a scribe considering to following the famous rabbi of Nazareth, I've got to think that he's going to give me something, and that's what was going on in this scribe's mind. It's so easy to get caught up with all the things that Jesus was doing and forget all the strong commandments he was giving. I have a couple of kids, and if I were to tell them, listen, you need to do this and that, and afterwards you'll get ice cream. Guess what my kids are hearing? Wah, 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 ice cream. Right? So that's what they're listening to. That's what Jesus, they see healing. They see feeding. They hear the same thing. But what they're focusing on is healing and food. This scribe, for the teachings that he had, still saw Jesus as just a provider. Some were zealous, wanted him to be a king, but a king that would provide for his servants, his people. But they weren't there for the right reason. And so when Jesus pointed that out, many of them fled away. Then when Jesus said, this is a time when the Son of Man's going to die, that really must have changed their perspective. Jesus said in verse 23, again, of, of Luke chapter 9, you can flip your finger back. I took my finger out. Luke chapter 9, 23. 
he was saying to them, if anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself, take up his cross daily and follow me. Many ignored the call of total submission, even to death, when they came to Jesus. But he says clearly, if you wish to follow me, there is possibility that it will cost you your life. What does it mean to follow then? What is, what is, if someone's going to wish to follow me, what does it mean to follow? The word follow here is used in each of the conversations between Jesus and these three men. And it denotes a total life of commitment. In fact, every single one of these examples in the Greek is a future tense. So it's an ongoing, it's something you will do. You will follow me. Follow me. Lord, I will follow you. I want to follow you, but first, but first. He says, this is lifelong commitment. It has a future ending, but it's a, it, you are doing it for the lifetime, ongoing. They, they heard it. They understood the language but they didn't like the requirements. Jesus' response to this man was, foxes have holes, birds of the air have nests, but he, the Son of Man, had nowhere to lay his head. If you're like me and you read this, you're thinking, how is this an answer to what Jesus was asking? That's the thing I thought of. When I first read this passage, I thought, the guy says he's going to follow me. You follow me, and and now I'm reading that he's talking about where they're going to sleep. Because Jesus knew the man's heart and what it was in for. The first man here wanted what Jesus wasn't offering. Following me, according to Jesus, will not bring you comfort, ease, and provision. That's not in the deal. This scribe was looking for comfort, and Jesus tells him that where he's going, he'll have no comfort. Speaking of foxes, there's a book by Fox called Fox's Book of Martyrs, different fox. But Fox's, Fox's Book of Martyrs is all about those who followed after Jesus. And in the title, Martyrs tells you that their ending wasn't as glorious as you would desire to have for yourself. Fox's Book of Martyrs were the tale of those who followed Jesus and received death. Jesus said, if you follow after me, be willing to give your life, to take up your cross daily. Fox's Book of Martyrs talks about it. Jesus here is saying, foxes have a place where they can go. They knew where foxes were back then. We know what foxes are now. They have a hole. They have a place to live. They also knew what birds did. They had a place to sleep. Jesus says of himself, I don't even have a home. The gospel tells us that there were many times where Jesus would arrive in a city only to find that there was no place for him. He wasn't welcome. In fact, even when he went to his hometown, they took him up to a hill and wanted to throw him off a cliff. So the Son of Man had nowhere to lay his head because every time Jesus would go to these places, they would, if he didn't give them what they wanted, they wanted him out. Jesus went to the city of the Gadarenes. You you remember the story of the Gadarean crazy man that was in the tombs cutting himself with stones and tied up with chains? Jesus healed him, cast out demons, put him in the swine. The swine went over the, the hill into the sea. And what did they do? They wanted to kick him out for healing a crazy man. That's the welcome that Jesus would receive. Do you remember Jesus' birth? Do you remember his birth? 
Well, what is the story you hear as a kid? They, he went in, Mary and Joseph went into the city of Nazareth, but there was what? No room for them. Where? In the end, right? Even at his birth, there was no room for him. Nothing changed. If you're here this morning and you've been led to believe that Jesus came because he wanted to give you comfort and that he gives comfort to his followers, please be aware that comfort is not what Jesus came to bring. And you're thinking, wait a second, Jesus gives comfort. It's true that Christians have received great comfort from knowing that Jesus has saved them from condemnation, from the necessary condemnation of their sins. But our comfort that we receive from Jesus should be a byproduct of our conversion, not the purpose for it. We ought never to come to Jesus wanting to receive anything but forgiveness of our sins. We are throwing up the white flag and saying, we surrender to you. There's a song, I surrender all. We're called to surrender everything. Jesus, God has cannons pointed at us. We're God's enemy. Read Romans chapter 8. You think of uh, that there's no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. Those who aren't in Christ Jesus are at enmity. They're God's enemies. We were God's enemies. Not that, that we, that God wanted to destroy us. We fought. We shook our fist at God. He gave us the condemnation that we deserved, but his son stepped in. Jesus will provide comfort, but that should never be a reason that we go to him for salvation. Once we've been converted, then you read Matthew chapter 11. Come to me, all you are weak and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Right? That's Matthew 11, it's the end of the chapter. You can take notes for that one if you want to learn about the comfort and rest that Jesus does offer. Because he does offer those things, but not as a draw card, not as a reason to receive salvation. So this first man wanted comfort, and Jesus wasn't offering. But what about the second man? Look down at verse 59. And he said to another, follow me. This is different. He commanded, this is a command, follow me. But the man says, Lord, permit me first to go and bury my father. But Jesus said to him, let the dead or allow the dead or the dead should go bury the dead. But as for you, go, another command, and proclaim, another command, everywhere the kingdom of God. Here we have a man, Matthew calls him a disciple. This is, if you, if you were to flip back and forth between Matthew chapter 8 and Luke chapter 9, you get a fuller picture. Matthew calls him a disciple. So Matthew says this guy's already following after Jesus. But just be careful. Anytime you read disciple, don't always just think disciple means believer. Because the word itself just means follower. This man was following after Jesus. Crowds were following after Jesus. He wasn't one of the 12, but he had been following possibly since Capernaum where Jesus was at the beginning of the chapter in chapter 9. Unlike the last man that Jesus spoke to, the scribe, Jesus is the one saying, follow me. 
First guy says, I'll follow you wherever you go. This man is at the, the receiving end of Jesus' command. Follow me. Like last time, this is not a momentary assignment. Jesus is calling this man to a lifelong commitment. And the man says, hey, I want to follow you, Jesus, but before I can, I need to go bury my father. Now, you may have heard different reasons for this, and it doesn't make very much sense however you read it. This guy is saying, I want to follow you, Jesus, but I've got to stop right now and go bury my father. Or is there other meaning behind it? There's two common conclusions that we can draw from what the man says about burying his father, and we can base it a little bit on the customs of the day. First is the thought that the man's father wasn't even dead. This guy has heard the first guy. Jesus has said, you've got no comfort. I've got no place to lay your, for you to lay your head. And this guy goes, well, then I've got to wait for my inheritance so that I can follow Jesus. So I've got to wait for my father to die. I'll get my inheritance. Then I'll have money to provide for myself as I follow Jesus. That's one option. The other option is that the man's father was indeed dead. That makes sense. Let me go bury my father. He could have been stating his father had died and that it was his responsibility to carry out the burial. But the burials back then were different than the burials today. Do you remember when Jesus was dying on the cross, when he was dead, they took his body down and they immediately began to wrap it and put, uh, they preparing spices to put on his body? Why? Because the Jews didn't embalm. So the body immediately upon death begins to decay. And so this, this man saying, I've got to go back and bury my father is, sounds confusing because if his father is dead, he should be at the burial because it happens quickly. They wrap them up, they put the spices in them, and they put them in a tomb. Some have wondered why this man would be even here if his father was being buried now. But I'm going to give you a little more insight into some of the customs. Burial was a two-part deal. You had the initial burial, and then you had the time of decomposition over the year. The body would be placed in the tomb, and it would begin to decay. Throughout that year, as the body decayed, what would be left is bones, right? Well, if you, if you understand customs back then, the eldest son would be required to go and to gather up the bones and place them in what's called an ossuary or a bone box. And that box would then be what would be placed in the tomb. Takes up less space, but that was a requirement of this, the oldest son to gather up the bones. That was also part of the custom, part of the burial custom. So this man could be asking, Jesus, I need up to a year, perhaps, before I'm ready to follow you. I'm ready. You said follow me. And I said yes, but I need about a year to get my affairs in order. This man had a right thought. The fifth commandment says that you are to honor your father and mother, right? If that was his responsibility as the son to go and to bury his father, it would be wrong to not honor that commandment and not bury his father. To fail to follow through with your responsibility would be disgraceful. Regardless of either one of them, whether it was because he needed money 
or because he felt that there was some kind of commitment to custom, he wanted to wait. But we know Jesus knew his heart, and the delay was purposeful. One thing that is missed when studying the life of Jesus is that he knows men's hearts, everyone around him. And sometimes we just get to see Jesus' response, and we go, well, why is he saying these things? And then we begin, as we study more, to understand, well, this is why. We see their motives, and he's responding to their motives. Remember the young man, the rich young ruler that came up to Jesus and said, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And he says, Jesus says, you know the commandments, do not kill, do not steal. And the young man says, I've done all these things for my youth. And Jesus says, good. Now go and sell all that you have and follow me. Which doesn't make sense unless you understand what follows when it says, this man went away weeping because he had great wealth. And then Jesus says, you know, how impossible it is for uh, a rich man to enter into the kingdom of God. We, we see that the reason this man wouldn't do these things is because he was depending on his riches. And Jesus had to tell them these things because his response doesn't make as much sense unless the context is given. Jesus' strong language is not surprising when he tells this young man, go let the dead bury their dead. Sounds pretty strong. And it was. These words sound strong, but what is he saying? Is he telling this grieving son to abandon his family at their time of grief? Yes. Yes. He's telling a grieving son to go and abandon everything and follow him. He went to Peter and James and Andrew and John, and they left their businesses, they left everything in their lives to go and to follow Jesus. They gave up their lives. This was not unusual when Jesus called these people to true discipleship. Many today say that you can become a Christian by repeating a few words after someone, and then sometime later when you start to get your life in order, you can make Jesus Lord. But this isn't what Jesus teaches. He says, deny yourself, take up your cross daily and follow me. This is not a different type of call that Jesus gave. Later in Luke, in chapter 14, turn over there. Turn over to Luke chapter 14. His message didn't change. Of course it didn't. He's the Lord. Luke chapter 14, verses, well, starting in verse 25. Now large crowds were going along with him, and he turned and said to them, what? If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. And then he repeats himself from chapter 9, whoever does not carry his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. Same message. Same message coming from the same man. Let the dead bury their dead. But you 
go and proclaim the gospel, commanding him to do so. What did Jesus say true discipleship entailed? What were the qualifications of a committed follower? Self-denial, self-hate, a love for Jesus so strong that love for family would seem like hate. And a willingness to die. Do you have those things? When you think of your family who say that they're Christians that don't follow after Christ, do they have those things? Self-hate, self-denial, a love for Jesus so strong that their love for you would seem like hate in comparison, and a willingness to die? This man didn't have it. Back in verse 59, this man had placed other things ahead of his commitment to Jesus. He knew what Jesus was asking, but he was caught up in the cares of the world. This man let the cares of the world distract him from being a true follower. His cares and his worries of this world choked out the seed of the gospel. This is what Jesus was revealing to us in his heart. Jesus commanded him and said, let the dead bury their dead. It was a command. I looked it up in the Greek. It's a command. He's saying, let them do the work. You need to come and follow after me. Some have said that this was referring to that second burial. It doesn't matter. Jesus told him to follow Jesus tells them that these cultural obligations cannot come before a commitment to go and proclaim the message of the kingdom of God. So you have to ask yourself, when you consider yourself and others, is this the kind of hindrance that you have? Culture, customs. Well, the Bible says deny yourself and follow him regardless of your culture, regardless of your worries. And many of you have done that. I know, I've talked with you. Many of you come out of, and, and it seems uh, providential that our pastor, uh, he hasn't been here all week, even I haven't talked about what we we're going to have the book of the month be, and Pastor Matt picks out reasoning from the scriptures with Catholics. There are some of you who are sitting here in this congregation that rejected culture, family culture, church customs to come and to be a part of an evangelical church, right? Abandoning much. By coming to Jesus, you have been rejected potentially by your family and friends. That kind of sacrifice is honorable because that sacrifice in some instances is great. When a Jew becomes a Christian. They have a burial for the one who has become a Christian, who's become one of the way, who's become a follower of Jesus. They have a burial. Family members dead to them. It's one of the worst things that a person could do if you're a Jew is to follow after Jesus. But what Jesus was calling people to do to hate father and mother, sister and brother, 
that's what it looks like, if you have to follow after me, that's what's necessary. This is completely in line with what Jesus said would happen to those who are associated with him. He says, the word of God says later in in other epistles, he says that, you know, if you're a Christian, you will suffer persecution. That's a mark of a genuine believer. You got to be willing to sacrifice and submit to Christ over everything else. Our last man, also found in this passage, says to Jesus in verse 61, I will follow you, Lord, but first permit me to say goodbye to those who are at home. The third man was ready for an answer. He, he, he said, I'm going to tell, these two other guys came up, one said you're going to follow, and he had an answer for the guy. The other guy said, you received a command, follow me, and then he had a reason. This guy was ready not only to say I'm going to follow you, but I also have a reason already ready to give you. So I'm going to follow you, but. That was his first answer. What was his next word? But. This man didn't even wait for Jesus to point out his hindrance. He gave it to him. But first, let me go and say goodbye to my family. This man had problems with connections that he wasn't ready to sever. And we saw what Jesus had said in chapter 14. You remember what it said? If anyone comes to me and does not hate father, mother, wife, children, brothers, sisters, even his own life, he can't be my disciple. This man was half-hearted in his commitment. He wanted to follow after Jesus, but he also wanted to be with his family. So he was divided between these two desires. His commitment was in two different ways. John Bunyan, the man who wrote Pilgrim's Progress, wrote about a guy that had divided allegiances, called the man Mr. Facing Both Ways. <laughs> kind of on the nose, right? But that was John Bunyan. His allegory of the Christian white, uh, the life was, was not complicated. The, the main character's name was Christian. Uh, there was the slew of despond. There were, a lot of these places are just pretty clear as to what's going on. This man, Mr. Facing Both Ways, has the same problem that many professing Christians have today. They're trying to do the impossible. Follow Jesus and follow the world. Can't do that. Can't love the world, neither the things that are in the world. Because if anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. There is no divided allegiance for Christians. So Jesus answers again, knowing what's going on. And he says, no one, after putting his hand to the plow and looking back, is fit for the kingdom. Now, I grew up in a city. I don't even know how to run a plow. But I know that if you put your hand to the plow and the animals start going and you look back, your furrow looks like this. That is not very effective for the next furrow over, because you've got to follow that line the same way, and it's not going to work. I had a guy that I went to seminary with, and he grew up in North Dakota, and his family owned large areas of land. And these days, 
they just punch it into the GPS and then they can just be on their phone all afternoon and the, the, the plow does all the work for them. But that wasn't, they didn't have GPS back then. They had a plow, they had animals, oxen, that were hooked up to the plow and they had to focus. They had to set a straight line and especially the first one because every following furrow that they plowed went alongside of it. And if you took your eyes off of what you were doing, you had to start over. Jesus says, no man putting his hand to the plow and looking back is fit. This man is called to look forward to his following after Jesus and not to look back to his family. Now, I had, we're we're out of time, but I had a section talking about Elisha and Elijah. I want you to look in the scriptures. I I took it out of my notes because I was afraid this would happen. But in the, the story of Elisha and Elijah, Elijah puts his mantle upon Elisha. And, and Elijah, Elisha says, let me go and say goodbye to my family. And Elijah says, yes, go ahead. And then, you know where they found Elisha doing this? He was plowing at that time. So, so we have a really vivid connection between these. Elisha follows after Elijah, but before he does so, he says goodbye to his family. And then he kills his oxen. There was no going back for Elisha. This man says, I got to go back to my family and say goodbye. But Jesus knew his heart. This man was not ready to say goodbye to his family. Elisha was so ready to leave that he pretty much put himself out of a job. He said goodbye to the family. In fact, Jesus said, don't, don't go back to your family. Elijah at least gave Elisha an opportunity because it was clear that Elisha was there to follow after Elijah's uh, teaching. Elijah was Elisha's rabbi. Is that hard to say? Elisha, Elijah, Elijah, Elisha. There was a different response and a different outcome. If you're struggling to make a commitment to Jesus or you're struggling in your service to Jesus, it may be because you don't have the loyalty that you think you do. true with so many. I'm a Christian, but I do everything the world does. I don't want to give it up. Jesus commands the men back then and commands you today and commands your family who profess to be Christians to deny themselves, to deny yourself, to deny myself, take up my cross every day and follow after Jesus. Remember the testimonies this morning? I'm done doing my thing, following after uh, sin patterns and doing sinful things. I, I recognize I wasn't a, save, a Christian, and I needed to give up things. I needed to follow after Jesus, and I went through the waters of baptism to proclaim to you that I've given those things up. Those part of me, that life before, is dead. Those oxen, Elisha's oxen were dead. There was no going back. That is the commitment of a believer, to give up those things, turn away from those things, and follow straight on the commands of Christ. Why did all these conversations matter? Why were we introduced to these three men? At this point in Jesus' ministry, he was preparing 
people to go, men, to go and to proclaim the gospel and heal the sick. In fact, right at the beginning of chapter 10, he says, now after this, after what? After this, these conversations, the Lord appointed 70 others besides the 12 and sent them in pairs ahead of, ahead of him to every city and place where he himself was going to come. And he was saying to them, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. You know, there were few because he just had to kick three of them off because they weren't true harvesters. They weren't workers. They weren't really committed. This is, a, this is the word of God amazing. It goes right in here, and we understand why Jesus says that the laborers were few. Because we just had an interview with three guys who said that their resumes were up to snuff and were ready to follow, and Jesus said that you're not. Jesus calls you today to recognize whether you're a laborer of his or if you've come for the wrong reasons. All three of these men had put the cart before the horse. All these metaphors. Plowing and harvesting and horses and carts. and These men wanted to follow Jesus, but they had not yet entered through the narrow gate. So they weren't prepared to walk the narrow way. I pray this isn't the same for you. But if it is, you're in the right place. We're going to be closing our message right now. And afterwards, myself, Greg, Tom, are available to talk to you. If you haven't denied yourself, taken up your cross, and committed fully to Christ, talk to us. It took much for Tom to go through the waters of baptism again. Because some of you may have been thinking, this does, seems a little out of order. Tom's one of our deacons. Why is he going through the waters of baptism? And Tom did an honorable job explaining why he was there. He sees the importance of the, the local body. If you've been baptized already and you realize, maybe I didn't come to Jesus for the right reasons. Maybe, maybe I'm just kind of carrying along following after my parents, grabbing onto my parents' coattails, like someone that was baptized today, growing up in a Christian home, but not really having a genuine conversion. These things happen in Christian homes. If you're one of those people, come and find me or Greg or Tom, and we'll talk to you. We'll encourage you to get baptized because that's the first step for a believer is to show your profession to the world. We, we have a camera, but it doesn't record that, so it only gets in here. But uh, that proclamation you're making before the body to say, I am done with this old world, done with this old life, and I'm ready to follow Jesus whatever the cost. Seems fitting that the message followed that. It wasn't planned that way. But the purpose was that we see a vivid example in baptism this morning. So if you've got that, if you're just wondering what salvation's about, we can answer those questions. What about church membership? Why is baptism so important? We have those answers for you. You just have to come to us and ask. Let's close our message in a word of prayer, and we'll sing song, and then we'll be dismissed. Let's pray together. Father, whether it's prophecy, whether it's epistles, 
whether it's biblical narrative, your word has so much power to change our lives because it's centered around one, the one, the Lord Jesus Christ. He's the one who we love. He's the one who is precious to us. He's the one that will judge the living and the dead. I pray that this message was honoring to him. I pray that our hearts would abandon selfishness and pride and turn away from desires of the flesh and depend on you. We live in a messed up world, Lord, because of the fall. We don't want to be lemmings that follows after the whims of this fallen world. We want to be slaves of Christ. We know that there's potential in the future, in this country, Lord, that some of us, whether it's us or our children, may lose their lives for their profession of faith. May we not lose heart. May we be focused on being like Jesus. Forsaking family, customs, whatever the world offers as comfort. Put our nose in your word, our feet and knees to the ground, and our hands to the sky to worship you, because you deserve all of it. May our prayers, our praises, and our thankfulness be given to Christ alone. We pray in his name. Amen. You've been listening to the expository Bible teaching of our associate pastor, Pastor Robert Bennett, on the High Point Baptist Church Sermon Cast, and we pray you have been blessed by what you've heard. If you have any questions about the gospel of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, or if you would like to speak with someone concerning salvation through faith, please reach out to us right away. It would be a great joy and blessing to minister to you. Contact information can be found on our website. If you have any additional questions or comments regarding this sermon, would like to know more about our church, or would like to submit a prayer request, just visit us online at highpointbaptist.church. Additional sermons can be found on the SermonCast page of our website and may be downloaded or streamed free of charge. Our website again is highpointbaptist.church. Thank you again for listening. May grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. Copyright 2018, High Point Baptist Church, all rights reserved.